In C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, Aslan the Great Lion gives Jill and Scrub the task of seeking the lost prince and bringing him back to his father's house. Now, Jill is given four signs to help them with the task, and when the lion finishes speaking, Jill says, Thank you very much. I see. And we read this, Child, said Aslan, in a gentler voice than he'd yet used, perhaps you do not see quite as well as you think. And that proves to be the case. At every point, the sign is not what they first expect. The problem is they expect the signs to come in moments of strength and victory, when in fact they appear at moments of weakness and even panic. By way of example, the third sign is you shall find writing on a stone in a ruined city. Sounds simple enough. The ruined city turns out to be a series of trenches they fall into and they're so busy trying to escape that they miss the sign. Perhaps you do not see quite as well as you think. How well do we see, friends? As we set forth under Jesus on his great quest to seek and save the lost in the Holy Spirit's power, what do we expect it to look like and feel like? Al asked me to uh, speak on resilience in ministry tonight. Now, I don't see myself as a particularly resilient person, especially when it comes to the gym. And by gym, I mean the seven-minute workout on the Johnson & Johnson app. It's amazing how long seven minutes can last. When I think of resilience, I uh, I actually think of um, the bar-tailed godwit. It's a bird a bit smaller than uh, an ibis. Some Kiwi scientists uh, put trackers on a few of these birds two years ago and one of the females known as 4RBBY in September last year, get a load of this, flew from Alaska to Stockton Bridge at Newcastle in nine days, non-stop. They can't land on water or they die. That's 11,800 kilometres, 1,300 kilometres a day non-stop. Remarkable. I also think of Bruce Morrow, who started as a CMS missionary in Owen Pelly, Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory in the late 1950s, and he's still in Catherine today, serving Indigenous people with the gospel however he can. Bruce's first wife died decades ago. His second wife, Janine, died just six weeks ago. He's faced all kinds of cross-cultural, relational and environmental challenges in Catherine, but he presses on. It's over 60 years now. He'd have some insights for us. I've been in paid ministry for 23 years, eight in Lithgow uh, in the Blue Mountains, 15 now at MEC, and I'm praying for uh, strength for many more ahead, and I'm praying for you tonight, whatever ministry you're in, paid or unpaid, church, home, other workplace, that God will strengthen you in his service. Now, I could probably alarm you tonight with statistics on ministry resignations and burnout, But I'm guessing most of us are alarmed enough already by the stories of people we know and love who are struggling to press on. And if that's you tonight, struggling, please reach out for help. The sooner you do it, the better. I could talk tonight about healthy habits and disciplines like Bible reading and prayer and accountability groups and sleep and exercise and eating green things. But I take all that as given, although I know that for some of you it's not. But perhaps I'm not the best person to convince you of the value of these things. And I could just find a hundred different ways to say press on. 
But I've been asking the Lord to stir the water at a deeper level around two issues tonight. Firstly, healthy expectations. And secondly, a heart encounter with God. And I think we see both of these in the Corinthians reading. Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth had certain expectations of the Christian life and the Apostle Paul wasn't meeting them. Quick look at the timeline of Paul's dealings with these folks, estimates only. Planted the church, perhaps 51 AD, stayed for 18 months, moved on to other towns, wrote 1 Corinthians, perhaps 53 AD, 2 Corinthians three years later. In the five years since he left, other teachers had come in, started undermining Paul. He preaches a message of a crucified Messiah. How can that be a sign of God's work? He faces constant hardship and persecution, spends plenty of time in prison. How can that be a sign of God's work? He's not a great orator. He looks and sounds unimpressive and he makes plans, you know, sometimes they don't happen. That can't possibly be a sign of the all-powerful, everlasting God at work. Now imagine someone stood up on this platform tomorrow morning and they'd come from a far-off land, say Western Australia, and announced there'd been a powerful move of the Holy Spirit. What do you think they've seen? Outward displays of success and victory? Plans coming off? That's what I'd want to see. But thank God for Paul who recalibrates our expectations of ministry so that we don't miss the real work of the Spirit. There are two parts to tonight's passage. It's not an easy part of the Bible to understand. But what is clear enough is that in 1 to 6 there's a discussion about letters and in 7 to 18 he talks about ministry. So there's just two points for you, a better letter and a better ministry. Now speaking of outward displays of success, there's nothing more impressive than a reference letter. The other day I came across a reference that I used to apply for my first real job as a journalist with the Land newspaper. I had to write stories about sheep sales, cattle sales, and at the risk of exciting readers too much, even pig sales. Here's the uh, reference. Dear Sir, Madame, it's my pleasure to offer my wholehearted support to Roger as he applies for the position of markets coordinator. I've known Roger for 14 years. It's been with great enthusiasm I've watched both his scholastic and business careers. And he went on to say that I can leap tall buildings in a single bound and I'm faster than a speeding bullet. You know the sort of guff that's in those things. Well, in Paul's day, teachers carried this sort of thing around to get a platform for their message. But look at verse 1. Paul says, Do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? See, Paul had a better letter. Verse 2. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. It's a beautiful picture, that. Christ is writing his name and character into the hearts of the Corinthian believers, and he's writing their names into Paul's heart. And Paul is carrying them around for everyone to read. You can just imagine it, can't you? Julia, showing love even under pressure. Andronicus, growing in faith through hardship. Urbanus, learning joy in the midst of uncertainty and sorrow. These aren't ink letters, they're Holy Spirit letters. Christ was the author, Paul the delivery boy. When I was in year 10, I did some work experience at 2UE radio station in Sydney. John Laws was working there at the time. I got on a plane in Griffith and I flew to Sydney. I felt important. I put my best pants on, my best shirt. Polished my shoes, even put a tie on. Turned up at 2UE. And they asked if I could make tea and empty the waste paper basket. And that's all I did all week. I hated it. 
I wanted to be on the radio. People say I've got a great face for radio. I wanted to be known. I was still a world's letter person back then, thinking that power was on the outside. I knew nothing of Christ's letters on the hearts of his people. If we're going to survive in ministry, friends, we've got to get our expectations right. And it's a daily exercise. And we've got to learn to sit with feelings of weakness and insignificance. We need delivery boy and girl thinking when an agitated sister or brother is giving an unreasonable critique of our Bible study or youth program or sermon or whole church. Why not? And it's happening when you're exhausted late on Sunday or on Friday night. I'd love to say that I immediately think of Christ writing another sentence in the patience chapter in my heart and him writing something good in their heart as well. The reality is I feel like I've fallen into a trench like Jill and Scrub. This is not part of God's plan and I've got to get out as quick as possible. In preparation for tonight, I emailed a few of you folks for input. I asked two questions. What most tempts you to give up in ministry? And what truth about God helps you persevere? One sister writes at the end of her answers, I am God's humble servant. And how he chooses to use my life is entirely up to him. Healthy expectations will take root in that thinking. With that thinking, we can learn to accept that we rarely feel on top of things. We can learn to rejoice when others get the credit for the things we've done. What tempts you to give up in ministry? One sister writes, My pride, not being appreciated or affirmed. A brother writes, When my pride takes over and I covet praise or notoriety. Now that was Jim and Leslie Ramsey. And they answered separately. You didn't copy, did you, Jim? If you thought pride was going away anytime soon, think again. And if you think your biggest threat is external, listen carefully to what these senior, persevering saints among us are saying. Praise God for their honesty. And praise God for his grace in humbling us every day. In humility, we learn even to take responsibility for other people's mistakes if it protects the reputation of the gospel. We've been hearing a bit about that tonight. Let me give you another story. I was chatting with Simon Gillam the other month about the founding of MEC. The plan was for it to be an evangelical Anglican church in Maitland. Simon was an assistant minister in Musselbrook. The bishop wanted to bring him to Maitland to plant a new church. But when the other Anglican ministers got wind of it, they called a meeting and tore strips off Simon and the bishop. That's ugly enough. But here's the really ugly bit. Most of the men in that room were named in the Royal Commission into institutional abuse. And they're either dead or in jail. 
Now, I long actually to have conversations with the many abuse victims in my But from the few that I have had so far, it's safe to say that to, to, to defend yourself with an opening line like, oh, we're not like them, <laughs> doesn't cut it. We, the church, got it wrong. Badly wrong. It's a trench moment, outwardly weak and hopeless. But Christ is at work on the inside, writing a better letter. And we're just called to deliver it. Later in the letter, Paul writes, Christ was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him. Now, the we there is particularly Paul and his fellow apostles, but there are parallels for us. And note, it doesn't say we were weak in him, but the spirit turned up and made us strong. We are weak, still, ongoing. Yet by God's power we live. Weakness and power side by side. The outside trench and the inside triumph happening together. How would you know if God's power is at work in your ministry right now? Well, unless I'm misreading this, it would feel a bit like a crucifixion. You won't feel in control of everything. Your plans won't be all working out. It may feel like it's hanging by a thread. Yet by God's power we live. Now, I've got to say, I'm as nervous as all Bill up here right now because I'm worried that someone might be thinking I'm providing an excuse for sloppy work here tonight or poor planning or that I'm on a downer and overlooking the joys and victories. Not at all. You know, one of the things I love and I love this about the FIEC, is the culture of growth here, fueled by stories of growth and a commitment to learning how to do things better. I treasure it. I want to be around people like you. But alongside that, friends, if we're going to persevere in ministry, we need robust scaffolding around our hearts to steady us through the disappointments and the failures. What tempts you to give up? One brother writes, stress at home can be overwhelming. Long-term sickness and family members experiencing conflict and isolation from church members. What keeps you going? The brother writes, God is steadfast in his grace. I've prayed many, many times for God to strengthen me. So he's scaffolding his heart through the disappointments with prayer. We need to pay attention to this, sisters and brothers, because our hearts are marinated in expectations of outward displays of power and success, and we can barely recognise it sometimes, it's so deep. I was at a kids' school presentation a few years ago, and the principal gets up and congratulates all the award winners who are sitting over here. And she turns to all the other students, the great unwashed, and she says, you can be like these people. Fair income. if you just work harder. And then you'll get good results. And good results will get you a good career. And then you can make good money and you can get a good house. Now, I don't think it was scripted. But gee, it was honest. 
like, there's the world's letter. Outward success and status. And, and we've got our baptised versions too in the church. She left off the bit, by the way, and then you die. Don't tell the kids that. The house of cards will tumble. Christ is writing a better letter through the Spirit, you see, engraving the hearts of his people with the eternal virtues of submission and humility and obedience and hope and joy and love. Now, I know we know all this. It's just hard to live by it. Because ideas of outside power are lodged deep in our hearts. See, that's why we get so disorientated when we fall in the trench. We naturally think this hardship couldn't possibly be God's plan for my life. That's why we're so tempted to rush away from weakness to that place of power and control. And Paul knows we're like this, which is why he does something radical in this chapter to dislodge these ideas. Let me ask you, is there anything more outwardly powerful than the giving of the law at Mount Sinai? Exodus 19, 16 to 19. Don't turn it up, I'll summarise the scene. Thick cloud over the mountain. Loud trumpet blast. Everyone trembling. Mountain covered in smoke. Thunder and lightning. Lord descending on it in fire. Smoke billowing like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembling violently. The trumpet sound growing louder and louder and then the voice of God is heard. Outward power on steroids. But Paul rather audaciously announces that it's powerless. I mean, it's one thing to expose the human-authored letters of recommendation as powerless, but here he's saying that the God-authored law of Moses is powerless when it's outside, on stone only. My second point, a better ministry. He makes three points about the ministry of Moses first. Verse 7, the ministry of Moses brought death. Verse 9, the ministry of Moses brought condemnation. Verse 11, the ministry of Moses was transitory. You know the story. God engraves the Ten Commandments in the letters of stone. He gives it to the people, but they can't keep it. Even before Moses comes down the mountain, they are breaking the Second Commandment by building the golden calf. They're sinning their pants off. So much for the outward display of power, it changed no one. Listen to Romans 8, 3. For what the law was powerless to do. Because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son, Jesus. The law is powerless to change and save. Only Christ can do that. Now you and I know this through bitter personal experience. Who of us didn't think in those early days that we could change ourselves and save ourselves by following the outward rules? A mix of Ten Commandments, a few of our own thrown in. And the harder we tried, the more we failed. The ministry of Moses condemns. And it'll kill us in the end, Paul says. So we fled to Christ in an act of desperation. Amen? But here's the thing, friends. We celebrate weakness in our salvation, but we're tempted to flee from it in our ministry and in life in general. But if we run, which I often do, 
we'll miss the riches God has for us. If we're going to persevere in ministry, we need not just healthy expectations, but a heart encounter with God. And that's what the ministry of the Spirit brings. Three things for the ministry of the Spirit. Firstly, access to God, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to approach God directly through the sacrificial work of Christ. In Christ, the veil has been taken away, and we're free to access our Father. Secondly, contemplation of God, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. Now, note, please, the background of all this is weakness and brokenness. It's the golden calf incident in Exodus 32 to 34 that Paul is commentating on here. A very deep trench moment for Moses and Israel. It was in the trench that God instructed Moses to set up the tent away from the people. And Moses went in and met with the Lord. Now imagine the fear and panic in Moses' heart around the golden calf incident. It was all falling apart and God met with him. It was in the trench that God revealed his glory to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. His name wouldn't have made sense on the mountain when everything was under control. It's in the brokenness and the weakness that the revelation comes. Surely a foreshadowing of the cross. And what a great question from Al on Monday night. Why weren't the miraculous signs enough? One reason is that true glory is not in the outward displays of power, but in the weakness of the crucified Messiah. And Paul is saying here that by the Spirit, God is still revealing himself in the moments of weakness. Now, I was tempted to give up around the time of the pastor's forum earlier this year. We had an unspeakably tragic pastoral situation at church. A suicide, a grieving widow, four broken children. And the circumstances were so difficult and complex. It felt like things were hanging by a thread for MEC. We wanted to get out of the trench. We couldn't. So we drove to Queensland instead. And the Lord really met us in his word. Especially Psalm 46. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy place. God is within her, she will not fail. God is her strength at the break of day. God's promise to protect his church became so dear to us on that trip. Psalm 119 says, The promises of God have been thoroughly tested, therefore I love them. Love them. It's a heart encounter. God doesn't want us just to know his promises, not even just to like them. He wants us to love them. And he knows the only place that we'll do that is in the trench. If you're on the mountain all the time, the only thing you'll love is yourself. This is not just about ministry, friends. It's about us as sons and daughters of the Father, like Peter. 
learning to keep our eyes on Christ lest we drown. Lest we drown. John Bunyan, reflecting on the grafting of the branch into the vine in John 15. This is for the orchardists from Shepparton. Growth in Christ is not the smooth, easygoing process some folk seem to think. It is wounding work, this cutting and breaking of the hearts. Where there is grafting of something lesser into the greater, there will always be a cutting. For the graft must be let in with a wound. Heart must be set to heart and edge to edge or there will be no life. No sap from the root to branch to bud and flower to fruit. Friends, if we're going to persevere, we need a heart encounter with God in the weakness and the pain. What tempts you to give up? One sister writes, disheartenment. When people who you expected would be shouldering the load with you don't seem to care or get it. A brother writes, conflict within the church. Does that ever happen? The sap of the life of God himself is flowing to you through the wound of disheartenment, through the wound of loneliness, through the wound of conflict with the church member, the staff member, the influential and difficult elder with your spouse. Today's our 26th wedding anniversary. I told Carolyn I'd take her out to dinner and a talk with some friends. Here we are, precious. Now, at the 14-year mark, we had a big conflict. Like, this is no laughing matter. The the presenting problem seems trivial looking back, as it always does, but the underneath problem was very serious. From my end, it was a vine of self-righteousness that had taken root in my heart and was bearing bad fruit like defensiveness and emotional stonewalling. I mean, what a sod I was at times. And I was choking the life out of our love. It was a deep trench moment. And God's love and grace flowed through the wounds and the bruising. God took me to a deep, a deeper grasp of justification by faith in Christ alone through that season. Who would have thought a marriage crisis could do that for you? See, going, going through this stuff changes you. That's the third part of the ministry of the Spirit, changed by God. Verse 18, we've been transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, some translations have from glory to glory. That's what literally is there. What does Paul mean? Well, one idea, perhaps the most natural, is to think of Christ's character being formed in us. Joy, peace, patience, perseverance. That's what Andrew was talking about this morning. Referring back to the letter he's writing in our hearts. But perhaps Paul is also drawing attention to the process, not just the result. From glory to glory, from the outward glory, which is passing away, to the all-surpassing glory of the Spirit's ministry on the inside, in the weakness. So we're learning to look for the Spirit's work in the trench, from that glory to this glory. Carolyn 
teaches scripture. She's got one school where the principal barely seems able to acknowledge her. She was driving away from the school the other day, fantasising about being a a specialist paediatrician providing vital care for the principal's sick child. Then she'd think I'm important. Now, the principal doesn't even have kids, as far as we're aware, so it's a fantasy. But she's trying to get out of the trench, you see. It's a dash for outward status. We all do it. The next day, she's weeding the garden, praying for God's strength to go on and crying beside the native hibiscus as God meets her in the trench. Glory to glory. Outward glory to the inner glory of the Spirit. And as we have these hard encounters with God, it's liberating, friends. It's even empowering. Look at verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope that is of the greater glory, we are very bold. We can face ministry head on. We can face life head on. If things are going well, we thank God. If things are out of control, we look for God in the face of Christ, our suffering Saviour, in the trench. Whatever the circumstance, God is there. He sees. He knows. He provides the grace and strength to press on. I want to bring this together and include it with three simple applications. In the boldness of the Spirit, we can, firstly, take responsibility for our well-being. Just a few very practical things that have helped me keep going over the years. Bible, prayer, song, fellowship, hardship. Loving the means of grace. Taking a day off. I can't wait for Friday. I mean, I love you folks, but I can't wait to get home and go on to Friday, get into the garden again. And forget about everything. Good day off. Proper holidays. Our church gives us five weeks a year. I take every day of it. Thirdly, find a coach, a mentor, a supervisor who can help you with the wisdom needed to navigate the trench. Listen to advice. Accept discipline. And in the end, you'll be numbered among the wise. And someone to help you grow in self-awareness. The purposes of a person's heart are deep water, but a person of understanding draws them out. Proverbs 20, verse 5. And one other thing. I mean, I could give you 20 things, but just four is enough. Read the book. Serve beyond your own ministry, not mine. That's Christopher's. Serve beyond your own ministry. F-I-E-C. Reach Australia. It sounds counterproductive. It looks like you're losing, but you're actually gaining. There's a river of joy and strength flowing out of the paddock of kingdom generosity. Have you tasted it? Secondly, in the spirit, in the boldness of the spirit, we can step up into new work where needed. Maybe the Lord's prompting you to plant a church or take on a lead pastor role or take a different role at church. We are very bold, aren't we? Because the Lord will meet us and grow us in every trench we encounter. Sixteen years ago, I was an assistant minister in Lithgow. Dave Sheath phoned me. Rog, we'd love you to think about going to Maitland. Now, at that very time, Bruce Bennett at OEC was advertising for an assistant. Now, the fearful me wanted to go to Orange. Bruce is a bushy. With broad shoulders. Now, I love you, Bruce. 
but I'm so glad I went to Maitland. It's 20 degrees warmer. You're probably glad I went too, mate. The Lord reveals so much of himself when we are where he wants us. Lastly, and this might sound odd at the end of a talk on persevering, but don't be afraid of stepping down from your ministry if that's what's needed. We're all going to stop one day. Now, maybe you need to stop earlier than you anticipated. Maybe deep down you know you can't do it anymore. You're empty all the time. If that's you tonight, please tell someone. Ask someone to pray with you, even tonight. Get the help you need. Please don't press on in an impossible situation and make things harder than they already are. Now, stopping sooner than anticipated can come attached with disappointment, disorientation, shame. We've heard about it tonight with the Radloffs. God will meet you in each of these trenches. Hear God's word tonight. Deuteronomy 33.11, the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. Psalm 94.18, when I said my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the opportunity to read your word again. Lord, we praise you for the better letter that Christ is writing in our heart and in the hearts of those among whom we've been placed. And we thank you for the better ministry of the Spirit that you've given. Lord, we praise you. We have access to you tonight. That we can contemplate you, Lord, in all your glory. And that you are changing us into the likeness of Jesus, even in the moments of weakness, especially in those moments. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.